1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their God and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. A little later uh, in the service, we'll be reading a passage uh, in Acts, which gives some background into Paul's connection to the church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, starting verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue, lead synagogue leader and his entire household, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it, is, it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Kentray because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. It's often said that there is no such thing as a perfect church. Now we know that because... Every church is made up of sinful people, and sinners create imperfections. 
But there can be times when the state of a particular local church, or perhaps indeed the condition of churches across our country, can lead us to despair or perhaps hopelessness. If there was a church for whom we might be tempted to despair, it would surely be the church in Corinth. Because this church has so many problems. If you read through uh, the chapters of the book, you'll see that there are a, a, a huge range of issues facing the church in Corinth. There are divisions over different leaders, people wanting to follow one particular leader. There are problems with sexual immorality in a number of different ways. There are church members who are suing one another. As a church, they're confused about the creation ordinance of marriage and gender roles. The people in the fellowship didn't seem to want to eat together as one body. There were problems in how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. Their worship services were disorderly and, you might even say, chaotic. The gifts of the Spirit were misused. There was a lack of love for one another. And some, it seems, were even doubting the resurrection from the dead. Warren Worsby sums up this church well when he describes them as a divided, defiled and disgraced church. This is a church you would think twice about joining. And if you were a part of this church family, well, then maybe you'd be thinking about whether you should be staying and whether you should be leaving. The church in Corinth is a mess, and everything seems hopeless. But Paul doesn't see it that way. Now, that's not because Paul denies the issues. As we work through this letter together, we are going to find that Paul speaks very directly about the problems in the Corinthian church. But before the church family in Corinth hear anything from him that is challenging in his letter to them, and he will have some very, very direct and challenging things to say, he wants them to know that there are real reasons for hope that it's not hopeless. And because there are good reasons for hope, there are good reasons to work on all the problems that this church family in Corinth were facing. Now we know that no church is perfect, and that means Emmanuel Church isn't perfect. We have problems like any other church, but problems shouldn't make us hopeless. And a big encouragement for us should be that if Paul could be hopeful about the church in Corinth in the way that we'll see he is in these first nine verses. Then he can be hopeful, we can be hopeful for our church, and indeed we can be hopeful for any Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. So there are big reasons to be hopeful, and that's what we're going to focus on in these first nine verses. But before we come to see those reasons, it's always important, isn't it, to get a bit of a background to a letter. And that's what we read from Acts 18. And as we begin and look at these first few verses, we'll see something of the background to the church and Paul's relationship with the church. So look with me at verse 1 as we see that Paul is the author of this letter. Verse 1 we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother, Sosophanes. Now, 
in those verses where Paul points out that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, he is making it clear that as he writes this letter, he writes not with his own authority, but with the authority of an apostle. Now, you might know this word apostle means a sent one. So the word is used to describe a messenger who is sent to carry an instruction or decision from the highest authority. So Paul is beginning this letter stating that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ because he wants the Christians who receive this letter and us as well to know that these words are not his words or his ideas, but God's truth for this church. And as he brings God's truth to this church, it is right that he is concerned for them because he has close connections to them. We read in Acts 18 about how the church had begun under Paul's ministry. He had faithfully preached the gospel and taught the believers there for about a year and a half. And we think that a sequence of things is that he wrote this letter a few years after his 18 months in Corinth, probably while he's staying in Ephesus. And being in Ephesus, Paul had heard about problems that were in the church from two different sources. Members of Chloe's household, who were from Corinth, were traveling through Ephesus. And they had shared about some of the problems that were going on there within the fellowship. And then the church themselves in Corinth had written to Paul to raise several questions with him. And so as we go through the letter, we'll find Paul addressing a range of different issues that are coming from these two sources. They're coming from this troubling report that he's heard, and they're the issues he addresses in chapters 1 to chapter 6. And then they're addressing the questions raised by the Corinthians in chapters 7 through to 15. So Paul writes as an apostle. He writes with that authority to a church he knows and he loves, and he addresses things that are troubling him that he's heard about from Chloe's households and questions they have raised that are struggles for them as a church. And he writes, who does he write to? Look at verse 2. He writes, the church of God in Corinth. Now, what do we know about Corinth? Well, we know that Corinth was a busy, commercial, cosmopolitan city. Sometimes it's helpful to get a sense of the geography. And if you look at the map uh, there on the screens, you'll see that Corinth uh, is there just bang in the middle. Uh, it's uh, there at the top of that bottom peninsula. And what's uh, significant about Corinth is it sits on a shortcut that was used to avoid a 250-mile sea journey around the bottom of the Achaean Peninsula. That's the bottom bit there. So ships would come in at one end of that little gap there in the middle, and if they were uh, small ships, they would be pulled across land. It's a few miles distance to avoid this 250-mile trip. If they were larger ships, the cargo would be offloaded. It would be carried across the land a few miles and then loaded onto other ships. So it's a strategic place where you have cargo and people and commerce all going past them. The route is so valuable that now there is a Corinthian canal on that very route. So it's there at a crucial point geographically. And the ships, well, they brought trade and they brought wealth. But of course, they also brought all the problems that come with sailors and with prosperity. And moral corruption was a huge issue in Corinth. It was so serious that to 
Corinthianize became shorthand for gross immorality in the ancient worlds. To speak of, of Corinthianizing some, to be a, a Corinthianizer would mean that you are guilty of great and gross immorality. So it's a prosperous place because of where it sits, but it's also an immoral place because of all that goes to it. And that brought a great number of temptations. And those temptations were coming into the church. And so as Paul hears about the issues they are facing, and as Paul responds to the problems that they raise, he wants them to know that there is hope for this church. And that's what he focuses in on, on these first nine verses. He says there is hope for them for two reasons. There is hope because of who the church is. And there we'll look at verses one to three, particularly zoning in on verse two. And there is hope because of God's work among them. And there we'll look at verses four to seven. So first of all, there is hope because of who the church is, a hope-filled opening to a hard letter. That's my title. Paul draws great hope from the identity of this church. And what we need to particularly notice, because so much of the introduction here we find in other letters, but what we particularly notice is the way in which Paul describes the church there in verse 2. He says that they are the church of God in Corinth. Now, that's an unusual expression. Paul often, when he is addressing a church, will speak of them as the church of a geographical place first. So he will say, the church of the Thessalonians, for example, in the letter to Thessalonians. But here he doesn't do that. He describes them as the church of God in Corinth. And what Paul wants to highlight right at the beginning of this letter is that they are God's church that they belong to him, and that is significant because one of the big problems in Corinth is that they had forgotten their identity and their allegiance to the Lord. They had absorbed the values and lifestyle of the culture around them. And morally speaking, they were becoming just the church of Corinth. And Paul, right at the start of the letter, wants to say, no, that's not who you are. You are the church of God. And in so many of the problems that Paul highlights in the church, that the factions, the sexual immorality, the selfishness, the lack of love, what they've done is they have absorbed the environment because the root cause was they had forgotten who they were. Now, this has always been the challenge for Christians, hasn't it? To live and behave like the church of God. Because the challenge is that our sinful hearts always want to fit in. We don't want to stand out because we know that if we can fit in, that will lead to an easier life. But we are the church of God. We are to be distinct from those around us. We belong to God. It was so encouraging to hear Emily ask us to pray for her as she goes to university, that she would stand out as she goes to university. How that should be our prayer for all of those four and others as they move to new settings, as they move away from Leamington. How that should be our prayer for all those who are coming to Leamington or other studies here, that they would not forget who they are. They belong to God. But in describing the church here as the church of God in Corinth, Paul also highlights something else, and it's this. 
that with all of the problems that they have, that doesn't stop them from being God's church. Do you see that the two things are held there together, both the challenge to be distinctive in their lifestyle, but also the comfort that they are the church of God. I sometimes wonder if we are too quick to write off a church when we shouldn't. We shouldn't require that a church be sinless to describe it as God's church. The identity of a church as the people of God comes from God's work of salvation in individual lives and the Lord establishing them as a body of his people in a particular place. They are the church of God. That means they're called to be different, but it also means that they are the Lord's. But then also notice that he says there in verse 2, the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, it's really significant here. This word sanctified means to be holy and to be set apart. And the kind of word that Paul uses in the original is a very deliberate choice of the word. So he uses a perfect verb to describe this church as sanctified, which means when he thinks of their sanctification, he is thinking about a past event with ongoing implications. But also, it's a passive verb which means it's not something they have done, but rather something that is done to them by somebody else. So they are sanctified in the past with effect in their lives today by something done done to them rather than something they do personally. Now, once again, we should find it surprising that Paul would describe them like this. In light of all the sin that's going on in the church, Yet he calls them sanctified. How can he do this? Well, of course, it's because of how they are sanctified. And he says it's to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, through his life and death, has made them holy. And through that past event to which they contributed nothing, they have been set apart and cleansed from their sin. And so Paul wants to highlight their status in Christ because of the Lord Jesus before he says anything about the changes they need to make. Now, why does he do that? Because when they hear his commands, and there'll be many commands as we work through this book together, the danger is that they will do something that many of us do, which is that we hear the commands and think they are the means by which we are sanctified and made right with God. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. And that's a crushing way to live. It leads to great instability, and it detracts from the finished work of Christ, who makes us holy through his death. See, what Paul is highlighting here is that our subjective obedience to the commandments of God always follows the objective realities of what Christ has done. And we see Paul following that pattern in what comes next, because having told them they are sanctified there in verse 2, what does he say next? They are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. They have been made holy through the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, and then they are called to be holy. Now, that, of course, is the great calling of the people of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's 
We think that this, this idea of being God's holy people is an echo back to Exodus 19 verse 6, where the Lord says through Moses, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And of course, Peter picks up that same language in his first letter where he says in chapter 2 and verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so this calling to be God's holy people will be vital to what Paul says in the rest of the letter. It's foundational. Again and again, Paul reminds them of their high calling they have as a people of God. And that's why they're to turn from the immorality of Corinth, because that's not holy. And they're to be different and distinct. But let's not miss, friends, that the beginning of this vital challenge to holiness comes after a statement of who they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the encouragement. Because when there are challenges, and when sin does need to be addressed in our lives and in the lives of others, we do that standing on the steady ground of our settled past sanctification in Christ. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? It makes all the difference because it takes away the fear of dealing with sin. I wonder if sometimes one of the reasons why we won't speak with one another about perhaps our struggles is because we fear what someone else might think of us. But what does Paul say here? He says, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And so we shouldn't fear. Why? Because we have been sanctified in Christ. We have a standing before God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That deals with our pride in not being able to confess our sin and be open about our sin. That deals with our fear of others and what they will think of us. And it helps us to be open with one another so that we can grow to be God's holy people together. So Paul says there is great reasons to be hopeful because of who you are as a church family. You are the church of God in Corinth. You are sanctified by the Lord Jesus through his death on the cross. And from that foundation, you are called to be holy. So be hopeful. But then also, Paul says, there is great hope for the church because God is at work with them. And here we come secondly to verses 4 to 9. Now we turn to this prayer of thanksgiving that is so often how Paul uh, begins his letters. And again, we should be surprised by Paul's words here. Because with all the issues that are going on in the church, he still finds reasons to be thankful for them. And what is his reason for thankfulness? It's God's work in them. Let's look briefly at God's work in the past that he refers to. God's work in the present and God's work in the future. So God's work in the past gives Paul great hope. And here we look at verses 4 to six, Paul takes them back to the moment of their conversion and reminds them what God did for them when he saved them. So he says, verse four, I always thank my God for you because of the grace given to you in Christ Jesus. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to the new birth, where we receive God's grace and acceptance through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse five, in him, in Christ, you've been enriched in every way. 
Now, what does that refer to? Well, well, that's a reference to the many blessings that come in salvation. That when we believe in the Lord Jesus, we become rich beyond measure because we know adoption as sons and daughters. We know acceptance with the God of heaven. We know peace for all of eternity. And he says, alongside that being enriched in every way, they have received the gifts of the Spirit. They possess spiritual gifts of speech and knowledge. We'll come to those later in the letter. But in all the things that, that Paul is pointing to here, they're receiving of the grace, they're being enriched in Christ. He says that as you receive the gospel message, as he preached it there for 18 months, that he knows, therefore, they did believe the true gospel message. Verse 8, their response to the gospel, the effect in their lives and that enriching of them. Verse 6, God confirmed his, their testimony about Christ among them. They had heard that true gospel message and they'd seen the blessings that flow from faith in the Lord Jesus. So as Paul looks at them, he says, I'm hopeful for you because God has worked in the past to save you. And because they are saved people, there is hope. But then he moves on from the past to the present. And here we come to verse 7 where Paul says that the God's work in the present means that they don't lack any spiritual gift. Now, some see this as a reference to the gift of the Spirit that Paul will come to later in the letter, but I think it's better understood as a reference to the present spiritual blessings that come by faith. Paul uses that same word for spiritual gift in Romans 5 and 6, speaking of the present blessings of salvation. So again, Paul is here telling the church that they are rich in Christ. In everything that Paul says about their past and their present, the key thing is that they don't lack the resources to change. They have received grace and salvation in the past. They have been enriched in the Lord Jesus so that they don't lack any spiritual gift in the present. And in reminding them of all this, Paul is seeking to encourage them to see that change is really possible. It's not hopeless. It's not beyond them to grow. It's not beyond them to address the problems. Because God has blessed them in saving them in the past. God has enriched them in the past and they are spiritually blessed in the present. Change is not beyond them. You know, there are some things in life that can just feel like they're beyond us. On our holiday this year in Cornwall, our boys had a surfing lesson. And after two hours of instruction, they were able to stand up on a surfboard and ride gentle waves. Now, I wasn't in the lesson, but I was watching on carefully, as an attentive father does. And I listened to them afterwards. They told me exactly what to do. So I thought, well, it's straightforward. I can do it. A couple of days later, we went down to the same beach. We hired a board and I had a go. It didn't go well. After two hours in the water, I could barely stand up on the board. I think I managed it twice and for about a second each time and I fell over. What did I have to accept? I do not have the balance. I do not have the agility. I do not have the skill to surf. But that's not the case for this church. All the hard things that they need to address are not beyond change, 
are not beyond their ability because they are the Lord's, because they've been enriched in every way. And so Paul says, look at your past, look at your present. And then he says also, look at your future, verses 7 to 9. There in the middle of verse 9, Paul moves to the future as he speaks to them, eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus when he will be revealed. And notice Paul's confidence for the church here about that day. Even though there are deep problems, and he knows that, what does he say? Verse 8, he is confident and thankful to God that the Lord will keep them firm to the end. And on that end day, end of verse 8, they will be blameless when Jesus appears from heaven. What a promise to hold on to. This church, in terms of how they're living are far from blameless. And yet, Paul says there there is a day coming when they will be blameless. And that means that God will protect them. God will keep them from deadly errors and deadly sins. And if you look through the history of the church, over 2,000 years of church history, between Paul's day and now, you will see God keeping that promise to his people. Perhaps especially in the period of the early church when they faced so many challenges, key doctrines such as the the deity of Christ and many others were under attack. But what happened? God kept his people. The light of the gospel did not go out and the truth of God was not lost and God's people were preserved. And why did that happen? Why is Paul confident that they will be kept firm to the end and blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. He tells us there at the start of verse 9, because God is faithful. The faithfulness of God grounds Paul's confidence for the future of this church. Isn't it significant that Paul does not say, I am confident for your future because you're outstanding Christians? doesn't say that, does it? Isn't it significant? Paul doesn't say, I am confident for your future because you've got great leaders. He doesn't say, I'm confident for your future because you have all the right programs. No. He says, I am confident for your future because God is faithful. He anchors hope in the faithfulness of God. This is the God who has called them into fellowship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who are called are always brought through to be blameless on the day of Christ's return. You know, sometimes we describe people as completed finishers, don't we? That's a personality type that's recognized. Someone who likes to take a task, see the project through from start to end. Well, when it comes to God's work in his people, God is the perfect complete finisher. The work he begins, he always completes because he is faithful to them and he will keep them firm through all the dangers. He will make them blameless on the day of Christ's return. And so, as we begin to work through this letter together and we see all these different problems in the Corinthian church, Perhaps as we reflect on our own lives, perhaps we reflect upon our own church family, 
We need to have hope. We need to have hope. We need to have confidence in the God who is faithful. Confidence in the God who has called us. And confidence in the God who will make us blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Too often we say that is too hard to fix. Too often we can write off a church due to the problems. Paul doesn't say either of those things. He says there are real reasons to be hopeful. Because of who the church is. Because of what God is doing in his people. And because God is faithful, he will finish the work that he has begun. Let that be our confidence, always and forever, in a God who is faithful. Let's pray as we close. Our Lord and our God, how we thank you that we can look to your faithfulness and find great hope. Lord, as we think of the church in Corinth and the multitude of problems they faced, how easy it would have been for Paul and indeed anyone who looked on that church to despair. But we thank you that he didn't. And our Lord God, as we think of ourselves, as we think of our church family, as we think of churches in our country, as we think of your worldwide church, we pray that you would save us from hopelessness and from despair. We pray, Father God, that you would give us great confidence because of your calling and your work in our midst. Thank you for the privilege to be named the Church of God. Thank you for the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray that in all the ways in which we need to change and grow, in all the ways in which we need to seek to become your holy people more and more, we pray that you would help us to do, from that, do that and seek that from that position of stability that comes from being sanctified through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So encourage us, we pray. Help us to see all the resources that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ and strengthen us in him as we look to him and serve him and live for him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.